Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles, a podcast where two people read through every single book to win a Newberry medal and then talk about each one. I'm Michael. And this is Rebecca. And this time, we are talking about the 1967 medal winner, Up a Road Slowly by Irene Hunt. Um, But first, a few corrections, because we on the Newberry Chronicles aspire to journalistic integrity. Well, before we get to the corrections, let us give a disclaimer that we both are recovering from COVID, and so we might sound a little bit more congested. You might hear a few Or husky and (laughs) those sexy, you know, (laughs) respiratory disease voices. We have not picked up cigarette smoking. Um, We are just... A tad bit sick. Just a tad. Also, I think there's someone driving by with loud music on their car, if you just heard that. Enjoy. So, um, on to the corrections, where we eat crow. Um, Where Michael eats crow. Michael eats crow, because both of these are things that Michael said. Um, So, first correction is fairly minor, but I just have to point it out, since I noticed it when I was reviewing the audio from last episode. Last time... I said, welcome to the Newberry Files instead of the Newberry Chronicles. And I just want to confirm that you did not accidentally stumble into a parallel universe in which we had decided on our second place name for this podcast. Uh, It was just me being a dummy. Secondly, maybe more significantly, last time we said Elizabeth Elizabeth George Spear was one of two authors to have ever won two Newberry medals. And this is, in fact, incorrect. Uh, There have been one, two, three, four... Five, six. There have been six authors who have won multiple Newbery medals. Kate DeCamelo, E.L. Konigsberg, Joseph Crumgold, Lois Lowry, Catherine Patterson, and then, of course, Elizabeth George Spears. So, in the spirit of journalism, I must say, we regret the error. <laughs> mistakes, <coughs> mistakes were made. Mistakes were made by me. <laughs> anyway, uh, this time, we're starting a fresh... New slate with no mistakes, and uh, we're we're doing so by talking about Upper Road Slowly, a book that Rebecca thinks doesn't make very many mistakes either. So, um, Rebecca's a big fan of this one. I like it too, uh, but we'll get into that later. Um, so first, I want to start off with the author bio. It's my turn to do the author bio, um, and so uh, we've got Irene Hunt here. Uh, a woman with a very mysterious past, we found out, because it was very difficult to find out what year that she was born, because her Wikipedia article gives two different dates, 1903 and 1907. And then the facts for when she would have written certain books or when she would have died differs on which birth date they decided to use in that sentence. As an English teacher, I feel like I should be compelled to remind myself that Wikipedia is not the best source to use um, uncritically. And this is a good example of that uh, because the editors, the the, Wiki, the Wikipedians, I think they have a, like a cute name for themselves. The Wiccans. They they, the Wiccans, the Wikipedians, uh, the, they, they didn't check their math or co- correlate their math with each other. But it's either 1907 or 1903 that she was born. Um, and we think it's 1907. We, we've, we've double-checked other sources. And some of these sources, as tends to happen in the internet... <laughs> all linked back to Wikipedia, in which her birth date is unsighted. Um, and so if I were a really, you know, good citizen of the internet, I would edit Wikipedia to have one of those citations needed things by her name. Yes, but we do think we found her obituary or something close to it, which would have her birth date being in 1907. All of that is fairly insignificant, but what is not insignificant is that she actually died on her birthday, and we believe it was her 94th birthday. In the grand Shakespearean tradition. Right. right. Shakespeare. Right. Um, all right. Well, anyway. Mark Twain, right? Maybe. He came in with a comet, went out with a comet. Yeah, but comets can come on different dates. Well, still, it's cool. Yes. Uh, she, she has a great legacy. Um, there's not a ton about her life that I think is interesting to share, although I'm sure that her life was interesting as she, to her as she experienced it. Um, but so she was born in Illinois in probably 1907. Um her dad died when she was young, and so her grandfather was kind of the one who was the father figure to her. Um, she eventually left Illinois to go to college in Minneapolis, um, and then returned to Illinois where she was a public school teacher for um, the majority of her career. Um, and she taught English and she taught French. And um, she had a short stint at the University of South Dakota teaching psychology, 
Um, but then she returned back to doing secondary ed and eventually died in Illinois in 2001. Um, interestingly, um, most of her writing was done very late in life. Um, she didn't start writing full-time until after she retired from teaching. And although she had written several books by then at that point, um, her career really took off So uh, as a writer. So this is really her second career after being a school teacher for so long. And I think as we get into the book itself, that'll come up a bit more uh, because there's some autobiographical elements in this in this novel. But Didn't she also win like a Hans Christian Andersen Legacy Award or something? She did, yeah. I didn't want to make the other awards jealous or the Newbery Award oh, jealous by right. mentioning other awards, you know. But uh, yeah, don't don't tell it to John Newbery, but uh, well, Hans Christian Andersen got in on the awards game. <laughs> What I think is so neat about her is she she didn't start writing until she was in like her fifties and sixties, but she had several like well acclaimed novels. Across Five Aprils was really popular before this one ever came out. And that was actually her favorite book. Um, so she wrote like I I discovered her in middle school, and we'll get into this book in a second. But um, and kind of just devoured all the books that I could read by her. She wrote Across Five Aprils, which is set in the Civil War, I believe. And then No Promises in the Wind, which is, I want to say, this sweeping tale about this kid that's been abused and um, is coming out of that. She wrote this, and then, what was the other one? The Lottery Rose. The Lottery Rose. That's the one I think that's about I know abuse. this because the books are on our shelves, I mean, and I alphabetized them. Yeah, see, I, I have not read the other ones. Um, I've only read them once, but I've read Uproad Slowly several times. But anyway, I... I, I think this author is just incredible. And it's crazy to me that there's not a lot about her online because, it, you know, I don't know. It, she is like a fairly acclaimed author. Like, right. she won a Newbery Honor, which is like a runner-up to this for uh, Across Five Aprils. Mm-hmm. And you would think that winning a Newbery Medal and a Newbery Honor Award would give you more of an internet footprint, especially yeah. because she died in the 21st century. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, she, you know, she died... Like, you know, way back where, you know, you'd have to go back into print media archives to find stuff about her. Like, you know, presumably, you know, some of her work has appeared online at some point. Yeah, I don't know. I just, we should all be talking about her if we knew more about her because she's, is, it's just incredible. But let me talk about this book. Yeah, yeah, tell so, us. What is Upper Road Slowly about? Because the title doesn't tell us anything. <laughs> hey, you're going to get your moment in the sun to talk about the title. And the cover. But I've got an axe to grind on the title. This book is a coming-of-age story about Julie Trelling. Um, she and her brother Chris come to live with her Aunt Cordelia um, in their early childhood after their mother dies suddenly. Um, she has an older sister, Laura, who um, stays living with her father. So she's separated from her, but that is she adores her. She's very close with her. Um Aunt Cordelia's house is only five miles away, but her father lives in town and Aunt Cordelia lives in the country. Um, and so it it's significant. They don't see each other super often, and she has a whole new set of friends. She goes to a one-room schoolhouse where her Aunt Cordelia teaches. Um, it, I think it's hard to summarize coming-of-age stories, but just some things that I think are highlighted throughout the book are really her relationships with... Um, this family, it's not a new family, but it's her new nuclear family. Um, her Aunt Cordelia, her Uncle Haskell. Who um, is not married to Aunt Cordelia, but no, instead Aunt Cordelia's brother. That's her brother. Um, and Aunt Cordelia was her mother's sister. I don't think that I specified what that aunt was. So Uncle Haskell is her overindulged alcoholic uncle who's always really close to publishing his novel, but everyone knows he's not really writing anything. He's not really committed to any endeavors. Um, this book follows Julie through her childhood as she navigates her relationships with peers in school. Um, some big characters that you see um, that are pretty pivotal in um, Julie's growing up, but also the development of her character um, is Aggie um, Kip- Kilpin, I think is her last name, um, who is a lower-functioning horror student in the school um, that Aunt Cordelia is constantly pushing Julie to be kind to, including her in their activities. Um, Aggie dies in the book from just 
really, she gets sick and her family does not know how to care for her, is not properly caring for her, is kind of shut off from the rest of the town and doesn't really want to accept their advice. And that is a very, um, you, you see, I think that that is a big part in the book where Julie's character matures as she sees this very ugly, terrible thing. Obviously, Julie's gone through trauma herself and losing her mother, but that scene itself, um, I really, I really think, takes a turn in the novel where you start to see Julie grow up, and that um, is pretty pivotal in the rest of her in the book. Um, also, her relationship with Carlotta, who is a um, definitely from a wealthier family in town. Um, she's got a horse, right? She's got a, yeah. She's got a pony and a, a pony, pony cart. Yeah. Um, and so that relationship is very formative in Julie's um, in Julie's maturity as well, and just kind of navigating like what her values are. Um, and you see that I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, Danny Trevor is another one of her good friends who ends up being her love interest. So you see her growing up with him. Um, this book takes us into high school with Julie, where um, she had originally planned to move back in with her dad because he got remarried, so there would be a woman in the house that could help care for her in her high school years, and she decides to stay with Aunt Cordelia. Um, you see her relationship with um, her uncle really take off when she develops an interest in writing, and he becomes a coach for her. Um, what we don't know at the time when he starts doing that is Uncle Haskell is actually dying. And so that's kind of his parting gift to Julie, but it's also Julie's parting gift to him for them to, to build that relationship. There's another big subplot between, um, you see Aunt Cordelia really develop through this book too, through the eyes of Julie. Um, and there is a man that Aunt Cordelia in the past was very interested in is now married and that's Jonathan Eltwing and he comes back to town um, they redevelop a friendship, and that plays a lot um, in a lot of scenes in this book. Um, the book ends with her getting a story published in a magazine right as she's graduating high school and beginning to go to college, and that's kind of where we leave Julie. So some things that are unique about this book is the setting is never defined um, much like, like the author's birth date, exactly. it is a subject of much ambiguity. Maybe all of this is very intentional because it doesn't really matter. I love know, the idea where... that Irene Hunt is like got a lifelong conspiracy to keep <laughs> whether she was born in 1907 or 1903 out of the public eye. So anyway, um, a, some people think that this book takes, takes place in the 40s um, after the war. Um, and is set in the Midwest. I mean, Irene Hunt herself was from Illinois, um, so that could very well be. And then they talk about um, some of the kids are going to college, and they say that they're going to college in the East, and so that would make sense if it was set in the Midwest. Others think it's set in the 60s when the book was published. Michael and I don't really think it, it seems... It doesn't make any sort of sense like to me. Like it would be. Like, I don't know. As I was reading it, I thought initially that it was set early in the 20th century, and then they started talking about how people had cars, mm -hmm. and then I was like, oh, so it's not like 1910, like I was thinking, but it it definitely does not, unless Irene Hunt was very out of touch with what was going on in the 1960s, it does not feel like it is set in the 1960s, there's no, there are no cultural signifiers, like either positive or negative about the 1960s, it feels very, like, early mid-century to me. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I feel like I summarized that kind of disjointedly, but I think it's hard in a coming-of-age Yeah, it's, like, like fairly that. episodic. But um, it is fairly episodic, but it all flows really well. And, um, you know, I have a lot to say about what I liked, so I'm just going to stop talking now and let you talk about what you liked, and then we'll get to me. Okay. So I had never read this before. Um, Rebecca had read this many times. Um, so I ended up liking quite a bit about this. Um, it's the kind of book that I used to read a lot of, and I really enjoy this kind of book. Like, it is very similar in some ways to Anne of Green Gables, mm -hmm. which is a book that I really like, you know, where you have uh, a child who has some sort of traumatic or, or difficult past coming and living with people who aren't used to having kids around, and they're kind of 
like eccentric and or strict and they have to like learn how to get along with one another and they become kind of like a really warm community of people where the child is allowed to like flourish and grow up and like become a it's like a sophisticated you know well-functioning adult and uh i think that there are ways that that kind of story can be kind of you know whatever anodyne but like this is a really good version of that um i also like and Gables, like I said, which is another really good version of that. And so, like, you have a lot of these beats that are very familiar to me, but I think that they're uh, just, like, in t- like very warm and enjoyable, right? Like, uh, Aunt Cordelia is the school teacher, and she's, like, this extremely principled school teacher. And, like, honestly sounds like the kind of person I would not get along with at all. Like, she refuses to call Julie Julie. She calls her Julia because she thinks that that sounds more Latinate than Julie, uh, and as, like, someone who teaches, uh, I think she teaches French, right, just like Irene Hunt did, um, I mean, she doesn't exclusively teach that since she's the one-room schoolhouse teacher, but I think that she has, like, a background in that, but background in the romances, mm-hmm. um, she's, like, very classically minded, and that, you know, leads her to be very rigid at the beginning, and it's, like, a source of great tension between Julie and her, um, and eventually they learn how to make that work with one another. And the way in which Julie makes it work uh, is she kind of rises academically to the occasion of mm-hmm. her um, of, of, of her aunt, like, and becomes, like, this really, like, academically industrious student. And, like, it's super lame, but, like, I always liked stories in which there were, like, kids who were, like, really motivated in school because, I don't know, you don't get a lot of, I don't know, as weird as it is to say, you don't get a ton of stories that are like that while also having interesting protagonists. Like, a lot of times it's either, like, really boring, like, I'm just, like, the Hardy Boys, and I'm, like, industrious, and I get, I'm good at everything, and the Hardy Boys are very boring characters. Um, but uh, something, someone like this, someone like Julie, is actually, like, an interesting character. You see her growth, and there's a lot of dimensions there, and she's also, like, motivated by school, and, like, I was also very motivated by school, um, growing up and so I like I don't know it's 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 fun to read about that and um also her aunt uh learns how to be kind of more emotionally available to her and she never really changes to be like a less um principled person but she finds ways to connect with Julie and they can they have like some good moments with each other and I think that that's sweet and well-earned like the relationship that grows like the rapport that they grow together um I also really like Uncle Haskell as well like he's He's a very fun character. I mean, he's, it's kind of sad, you know, he's like a failed writer, more or less, who is just, like, using writing now as an excuse to just go, like, get blasted during the day. Um, And, like, that in and of itself is kind of sad, and there's a lot of stuff in his backstory that they kind of use to explain that. But I also think that, like, he's very funny. Like, he's often this kind of, like, chaotic, like, character who comes in and will, like, say or do things to provoke people uh, or just say something kind of sarcastic and then leave and go go drink again or something mm-hmm. like that and he is kind of like this wise cracking like uh mischievous character who has all these like emotional depths that Julie again like finds a way to like eventually have a like a um a warm rapport with and care about him and all that sort of stuff and it's nice and what's also great is throughout the thread of the book you see you see Julie like having this sincere affection for her uncle, but also this fear that she's going to become him. Like anything that she does that is, you know, boastful or attention seeking, you know, she's like, oh, is that Uncle Haskell? Like, it, I don't know. And I just, anyway, I'm interrupting you. But it's good. No, it I, is so good. I agree. I agree with that. And I think Rebecca's going to have more articulate things to say. Um, than I, because I'm just reading this for the first time, but, um, I think that, like, for, like I mentioned at the beginning, like, this is a sort of story that I've seen a lot, but it's a good version of that because within those, like, expected beats, there is, like, the, the, the characters feel very human and mm-hmm. fleshed out for the most part. Like, I'll get, we'll get to negatives, I've got a few things to say. Not, like, a lot of negatives, but I'll, I'll wait until that point, um. I also will say, too, the prose is very, very nice in this, and um, I think, I can't remember the other book that I said that had nice prose. Uh, I've commented on this before, um, but... Was it Witch of Blackbird Park? 
Maybe, but like Witch of Black Pond is kind of a modern e like children's book in the sense of like you kind of understand like what the voice is going to be. But this um the the prose here is a lot more like florid and decorative than yeah. like I'm used to seeing in children's literature. And I think it probably excuse like, for an older audience, like as a result. Um but uh I don't know, it's just really really well put together prose and um I don't want to say like it's always an afterthought when someone writes a children's book, like how like beautiful the the prose is, but it sometimes feels like an afterthought. Uh, maybe in something like The Witch of Blackbird Pond, which is like very readable and straightforward, and that's like a skill in and of itself. But uh, this is a story where, like Rebecca and I mentioned earlier, it's it's pretty episodic in the sense of like one chapter will be like an incident in her life. Um, but the prose really ties it together and makes these kind of psychological connections between these different incidents that I thought um, it was just really lovely to read. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I those were the things that I liked about it. What did you like about it, Rebecca? Well, I like that you got all those things right, first off, so good job. No, I was really worried um, when we were reading this book together because this is a book that I have... I. I want to say, if I'm remembering correctly, I discovered this book in middle school, um, just in my, my school library. There was probably a display about, like, Newberry winners or something. I don't know. But I loved this book. And so then I read all of Irene Hunt's books. And this is one of those, I don't know if you all have books that you just, like, revisit when you want to feel good or, you know, you just want to... It, read something that's comfortable and safe and you already know you're going to like it. This is one of those books for me, like my Friday night, curl up on the couch, reread this book. Um, I just, I love it. And so I was worried when we were reading it together that you, you would think it was lame or something. Because also Michael has made fun of me for a long time, which I'm going to still, I'm, I'm just going to say, Michael has made fun of me for a long time for the title of this book. Because he says it sounds so boring. It's a book that okay, I would yeah, have never now, picked up. Since you brought I'm it up, sorry. now is the time. Now <laughs> okay. is the time. And, and then I'll get back to what I liked. But this, this is what I'm just saying. This is why I was worried that we we're going to read it together. But I'm glad that you. Yes. They it. they say don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> and dear podcast listeners, this is a prime example of that. Not just to judge a book, not judge a book by its cover, but not to judge a book by its title, which is frankly terrible. Right? Up a road slowly. One tells you nothing about the book, and two. Sounds boring. It would be like paint dries on a wall, right? <laughs> or grass grows in a lawn, right? Wait, and, say the other book and that I love. Another book <laughs> that I, again, didn't read for the longest time because the title made it sound awful and boring was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by, is it Betty Smith? Betty Smith. Betty Smith. And that's a very good book, too, when I eventually read it. But authors out there, because I know that the dozen people who listen to this podcast, one of you has got to be an author, right? Um don't title your books things that sound like you can just walk out in your yard and watch. Well, I w- all I want to say is the titles of those, neither of those titles stop me from reading them and enjoying them before you. So maybe the lesson it's is really true. for you and not for the it's authors. It's true. Everyone has their own built-in biases. Yes. However, I stand by my assertion that this is not okay. an interesting title. Back to me. So, Strike number one I- against Upper Road Slowly. What I love about this book, first and foremost, it is it is so rich with its characters, which Michael talked a lot about. But th- this book is really not about very much, but it is about there, there's so much within within that. Um, it so Julie and Cordelia's relationship is the one that's at the most highlighted, and I think is so good. Um, there is a scene in the beginning of this book that I think about so much. I think it's so point, poignant and um, beautiful, and it just makes me cry. There's, um, in the, you know, Julia has just lost her mom. I can't remember how old she was when she, she died. She seems, like, not that old. Like, I want to say, like, eight or nine or something yeah. like that. She's she's definitely school age, but she's very young, Um and you can tell that she's too old to be having tantrums, but she's had, obviously, this traumatic loss. And Cordelia is not there. She's probably taking care of something with her sister's passing. We don't know. 
Um, but she's in the home with the housekeeper, and Julie finds out that she's not going to be going home with her dad. She finds out that she's going to be moving into this big house of Aunt Cordelia's and away from her family, and she just has um, this huge tantrum. Nobody can calm her down. Um, she ends up, well, her, I'm sorry, her older sister ends up calming her down, but then later in the day, she just retreats into um, the the cupboard under the stairs, and she won't come out. Miss Peters can't get her out, and eventually Aunt Cordelia comes home, and um, Julie is just waiting for the scolding. She's just waiting to be yelled at, and instead Aunt Cordelia climbs in under the stairs with her and just holds her, and they cry together. And that scene is so good, and she just hits it out of the park. That's kind of where you start, and that kind of sets the tone for the entire relationship between Julie and Aunt Cordelia. Like, there's this tension there. There's um, on both sides, but they just grow together throughout this book. And you see Aunt Cordelia seeing a lot of herself in Julie. And what I also love about this book is it's completely told through Julie's perspective. And so I think that um, the narrative voice is so great in this book. And what I like about it is you can tell that Julie is writing all of this when she's older. You know, she's not writing this as it happens. So you see she has this very reflexive tone. Um, she's even correcting herself and chastising herself at, at parts. But you can always tell exactly what she's feeling and what her motivations are in that moment and what's driving her to do these things. And I think the narrative voice is just so strong throughout and while it does have that I'm sorry reflexive tone you also see Julie growing as she's telling her story which I think is really great um <coughs> sorry some other relationships kicking in. it is it is because I'm talking a lot um some other relationships that I think are just so great are we've we've mentioned this but Uncle Haskell's and um Cordelia's relationship with their mom is talked about throughout the book, and you feel like you know this mom without ever having met her. Um, so, well, you might disagree, but basically, um, their mother, Cordelia's and um, Haskell. Haskell's mom, really loved Haskell, spoiled him, turned his father against him, and couldn't gear a bit in the world. <coughs> so I'm going to fill in while Rebecca is dying of COVID here. Um, so uh, I will let her finish what she was saying. But um, while we're waiting on that, uh, I will just jump in to say, I really like that scene at the beginning of the story too. Um, don't tell Rebecca this because she's not going to know until she comes back and hears what I didn't like. But I thought that was the best scene in the book. And so the book had nowhere to go but down after that. So when Rebecca comes back, she'll finish what she likes. And that'll be the first thing I say about that I don't like about this book. So it's just a secret between me and you, the listener. Hi, this is Michael in the editing room afterwards. I uh, just wanted to throw a quick note here that Rebecca ended up coughing for quite some time after this, uh, and I was trying to continue the podcast for a while, and then uh, it just didn't end up working. Uh, so we're just going to cut to um, about an hour later after Rebecca had had some, some tea and uh, had a chance to rest her voice that uh, we were able to continue the podcast. So uh, sorry for the technical glitch. Um, I blame COVID-19. Okay, we're back now. An hour later... Uh, in which Rebecca has taken some vocal rest and drunk honey tea, like Adele when she had the vocal notes. Yes. Um, but I, hopefully we're, we're out of the woods. So, Rebecca, you were talking about what you liked about this Yeah, book. I'm sorry. Um, I got so excited and I forgot to drink water and just lost it. Um, so I think I was talking about Haskell's and Cordelia's relationship with their mom and their dad. So... Basically, Haskell is beloved by the mom. The dad is so sad that the mom ruined his son, loves his daughters, um, and 
Cordelia ends up being responsible for managing everything on the farm. And so um, Haskell also, we never hear this directly from him. You don't hear a lot directly from him, but um, Cordelia believes that Haskell resents his mom for um, not pushing him and, and kind of turning his, his father against him. So that whole dynamic is just fascinating to me and the way that um, Irene Hunt kind of weaves the story without even fully introducing you to people, I think, is done really, really well. Um, another relationship that I think is really interesting um, is the one with Jonathan and, and Katie Eltwig, and I think that Eltwing, um, I think, so just to give a little bit of backstory on this, Jonathan, Cordelia's um, former lover, I that's a big term, her former love interest, I should her say. Her Yes, her former beau, that's a very quaint term from a book like this, um, has returned to town with a wife that is described as very frail and... Um, Sometimes the word, the extreme word that's used is deranged. Other times, um, just fragile of the mind. Um, fragile of the mind. That's kind of how they talk about her. <laughs> She's a weird character, to <laughs> yeah, be honest. Which, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But I do think one thing this book does, I don't know if it's intentional, but I really do think there is a distinction between how Aggie is cared for in her state and how Katie is cared for in her state. And I think that Irene Hunt is showing us what kindness and care can do for people that are um, handicapped in some way. And I think that that is a, a, a very, um, I don't know, beautiful arc that's not right there in your face, but if you read it enough times like I have, then I think it is a very... Um, beautiful contrast there. Um, I also really love the relationship between Julie and her older sister, Lara. We don't get to see that a lot, but when we do see it, I think it's done really well. And she uses that relationship to show um, what it is like as, as a kid and others are growing up before you are. And you see their interests change and their priorities change and that is very hurtful to you until you understand what it's like and I think she captures that really well no one is wrong in where their priorities are but all of their feelings about it are very valid and so I I love that even though we don't see Laura a lot I think when we do um, it's just done really well I think this character is just uh, this book is just um, full of characters that are vibrant and dynamic, and I think that's its strongest um, characteristic. Um, I also agree with Michael. I think the prose is magnificent. I think the dialogue is really strong. You can hear these characters talking, um, which I, I just, I, Haskell in particular is just so quick with his wit and even Cordelia and the way that she says things when she's angry, you can hear your your aunt that is, or not just an aunt, but, but that character in your life that you think is so uptight about things, you can hear them talking, but also understand why they care so much about those things that you think are ridiculous. So I think the prose and the dialogue is really great. Um, there's one more. I, I talked about the narrative voice. One thing that I didn't mention is um, I think it is so amazing that Irene Hunt was so, uh, you know, she was an older lady writing this, and she really can tap into what it feels like in the heart of a child and what things look like from your point of view and also from the points of view of the caretakers who are caring for these children. And she reminds me a lot of Beverly Cleary in that Future way. Future Newberry Medal winner. Yes, yes. Um, and, and in her Ramona books, and I, I just, ah, gosh, they're just geniuses, so I love, I love that from both of them. Um, one more scene I want to talk about before I give it back to you. Oh, two more things, I'm sorry. Um, I think 
without the setting being defined in this book, I think the sense of place is really, really strong. And I don't know how she did that so well, but I, I just think it's very distinct and very strong. Um, one other scene that I think about often just if I come across a situation where I want to be judgmental, but I can also kind of empathize with what's going on, is there's this scene where Danny and Julie are together, and um, something tragic does happen with Carlotta that I mentioned earlier. She, It's never explicitly said, but you can tell that she becomes pregnant um, with Julie's ex, actually, like her first heartbreak. Um, this guy was bad news. Um, everybody. Yeah, this dude's like a total dirtbag. Like, I don't really understand it. why and he likes him. He's the only character in the book that you don't sympathize with at all, I think. I think every other character that Hunt writes in this book, you can sympathize with them on some front, but him is like, he's just. Well, he, he almost like sexually assaults her, right? Yes, There's like a scene in which absolutely. Pascal shows up, right? And yes. saves her from being yes. assaulted by this awful boyfriend so of hers. There is one character that there's just no redeemable qualities that you find with him in the book, and, and he ends up um, getting Carlotta pregnant. And so that's it's, it's kind of the secret in town, and nobody's really talking about it. And Danny and Julie are together one night, and they um, drive by her parents house and they see in the garage there's her little pony cart that's there and turned over on its side and I just that that scene is is so good and Julie tells herself be very kind Julie Trelling be very kind in what you think and say about Carlotta and I think that line is just so wonderful um and and I think we've all had those moments in our lives where we have to stop and think about what what we could do what we could think about that person, what we could say in that conversation. Um, but I think when that kindness is is chosen, it's a graciousness that we extend both to ourselves and other people. And I that's just a line that I've thought about a, a lot, and I think it's it's just really good. Um, so I, I apologize for my coughing fit. I think that Be I'm sure done. sure you drink more of this honey tea. I will. I think that I'm done for the moment. I'm going to turn it over for you to dismantle everything I just said. So. I'm not going to dismantle everything that you said, uh, but it's now time for the section where we talk about what we dislike about this book. And I've already talked about it, I don't like the title, so take that up with her publisher. <laughs> you didn't I talk suppose. about the cover, though. Oh, yeah, the cover. Um, Which so there's a few. I'll, I'll get to my first real uh, grievance with the book in a second. And when I say grievance, these are fairly minor things. I like this book overall. Um, but the cover. So the original, like, first edition cover of this book is like a watercolor of a house in the country um which is like not the best cover for a book that's already called upper road slowly but it's better than this one in which it is a i don't know what this is is this a painting um regard yeah it's a painting of a house in the country and there's the road that i guess you go up, <laughs> up slowly and then uh julie or who i presume is julie is there in a cardigan and a button-up like kind of hanging on the fence like looking down the road, not up the road, actually. Um, if we're assuming that up the road means up the, up the hill. Um, and she's just, like, looking out into the horizon, like, with this, like, pensive, like, kind of wholesome look on her face. And it, for a book that's already called this, it's not good. Um, Rebecca found one that's kind of like, here's how Rebecca described it. She said, <laughs> this is a cover in which Julie is... Uh, she has boobs on the cover. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and uh, it is a book, or, or it is a cover that looks very much like it was like someone in the 60s or 70s. She's like, in a top that's a bit more suggestive. It's not sexy, but she's she's clearly a, a teenager. And she's got boobs is what Rebecca wants you to know. Um, but that one at least like makes her look like that she's like... Uh, you know, when everyone else was dropping acid out in, like, San Francisco, she's, like, whatever the teens who stayed in Illinois looked like um, in the 60s. Uh, anyway, so real, real things that I think I didn't like about the book, besides, like, the editorial choices on the covers. Um, I do think that the book begins on its strongest note. Uh, I think that, like, the book is, like, very compelling when it's, as I said earlier, doing the really dark like, childhood trauma element of it and how she's having a hard time adjusting to her life around her and, like, other dark stuff, too, like how 
he's really mean and insensitive to Aggie, who then just dies. Yeah. Like, there's no reconciliation. She tries to go reconcile herself to Aggie's family, and the family just, like, yells at her, and she has to leave. Um, and I think that's all, like, very, like, like, uh, bracing and, like, really well evoked. And I don't want a book to be depressing all the time, but there's a certain point at this book in which she kind of gets over this hump that's maybe, like, halfway through the book. And the rest of the book, I'm not saying that she doesn't grow, but she ceases to face, like, internal struggles as to the acute degree that the original part of the book does. And a lot of it has to do more with how do I help the people around me who are having struggles? And that's not bad. Like, I like this book overall, but it becomes a little less interesting as it goes along because she becomes self-actualized fairly quickly um, in terms of the full scope of the book. Um, and uh, so I thought, like, it's one of those books where at the beginning, it just, I liked it a little better than at the end. But again, like, it's fairly minor because I still like the book overall. I thought it was really good. Um, the other thing I'm going to point to is that like, when she ends up with Danny, um, I don't think Danny is a very well-realized character. And, I agree. And because, because, I'm, I don't mean that he's not a well-realized character in general, but as a love interest, he's not well-realized. Because most of the book, until they're, like, horny teenagers, um, <laughs> he just is making fun of her. And that's literally his only role. Is every once in a while, she'll be doing something and be like, oh, then there's Danny giving me a hard time about whatever. Um... And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Danny. Hmm. And, like, I realize that this is kind of how, like, puberty works. You know, all of a sudden, like, you start seeing other people differently because you're starting to be, like, interested in them. However, like, by the end of the book, they're talking about, like, long-term stuff. Like, oh, do we go to college together? Or, like, uh, when are we going to get married and stuff? And, like, I just never feel like the book does the groundwork for that. I don't really know who Danny is in relation yeah. to her except as, like, a pest when he's younger and then all of a sudden, as this kind of, like, like honestly, like, kind of Hardy Boy-ish, like, uh, love interest. By, and I, my, if my parents are listening, this is not to besmirch the Hardy Boys. They know I read a lot of the Hardy Boys. But the Hardy <laughs> Boys themselves are not the interesting parts of that book, of those books. Um, and similarly, I don't feel like Danny is very interesting. And it becomes weird how central he becomes. Like, by the end of the book, her biggest question is, what am I going to do with my relationship with Danny when he goes off to college and then I have to make a choice about, like, whether to do some sort of long-distance thing. Or if, is he going to meet someone cooler than me at college? Which, spoilers, he probably will. Like, I'm sorry, but this book, like, this book ends on, like, this highly idealized, like, oh, I'm, I'm a full-grown person now that I've graduated high school. Which I think is a perfect place for this book to end. But it does kind of leave open-ended, like, is she really going to maintain this moment of serenity and tranquility, you know, when she's, I guess she's like 18 or something like that. Like that's, I'm going to sound like an old person, but I mean, you're still very young when you're 18. There's still a lot of like life choices and decisions that you're going to have to go through, um, especially if you're going off to college. Um, and so I think the book ends on a good place, but the fact that her biggest question for her future is like, how does Danny fit into this is is not something that the book lays a lot of groundwork for. And I, it felt a little bit anticlimactic to me. But again, those things that I just brought up are pretty minor. I thought this book was really good overall. I enjoyed it. But if I had to pick things that I didn't think quite worked for me, those would be the things that... Oh, yeah, yeah. And also, I know that Rebecca maybe is going to say a little bit more, but like um, uh, Katie Outwing, I don't know. That's just such a weird... That's a weird character. Like, the way that the book... And I, I realize in the 1960s, and especially in the 19-whenevers this is supposed to take place, like, people didn't have a robust language to describe mental health or cognitive ability or things like that. But she is, she is simply portrayed as being, like, too frail for this world mentally. And that's... Like, she's broken by, like, strong emotional things. And that... I don't know. I just never got her. I never understood, like, what was supposed to be going on with her. It seemed like she, like, had waltzed out of, like, a, like, Jane Eyre or something like that. You know, one of these books in which, like, uh, you know, your mental and, and physical state are, like, so closely intertwined and, like, determined by, like, the whims of, like, personal fortune or, you know, something like that. It, I don't know. It felt weird and kind of old-fashioned, but maybe I'm just not I, connecting to it like I should. 
I agree. I don't want to take the floor from you, though. The floor is done. Okay. I agree with you. Um, I have thought that every single time I've read this book. And that is, like, the one thing that I'm like, what is going on with this character? And I Googled it to see if anybody else was talking about it. And nobody's talking about it because nobody's talking about Irene Hunt. And nobody's talking about this book. This mysterious... It's because they can't figure out when she was born. Everybody's sleeping on this book. And I don't understand. But I have a crazy theory that there's Crazy. no... This is good. Not, a good start for our discussion no, on mental health. There's no... Sorry, that poor <laughs> use of words from a mental health professional. I should know better. But... It's all right. You quit your job. I... Should, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, you got me off track. So there's no... There's no basis for this in the book. There's no evidence. But I have a theory based on when we think this book is set. I think... Um, that she might have had a lobotomy. I think that there's a chance that she was struggling with something mentally or emotionally, and she had a lobotomy, which would make sense. Because my whole thing in this book is like, how did she and Jonathan end up together? Because he is portrayed as this brilliant man, you know, he's, um, very... I don't know, like, he's, everybody loves him. He's very charismatic. He's very um, easy to talk to. Like, it wouldn't make sense for him to marry this woman that couldn't really have an articulate conversation. And you can see her deteriorating throughout the book. Like, but when she comes, everybody's like, oh, she's a bit deranged. You know, let's be nice to her. Let's be tactful. Um, but At least they're nice to her, <laughs> which is more we can say of Aggie. Poor Aggie. Right, but that's my theory, because in the late 40s and into the 50s, that's when lobotomies became really, really popular in the United States. I think that that seems like a good theory. So. And I would, it, it seems like the sort of thing that an author would allude to in a children's book, but not want to confront directly because it's a children's book. In the right. same way that, like, it's kind of sort of implied that, uh, um, what's her name, Carlotta is raped, just mm-hmm. like, um. Mm-hmm. Just like Julie would have been, uh, but again, like right. the book doesn't say that directly because, you know, as much as this is like definitely geared toward like an older, the older spectrum of, pe- like kids, this is still like trying to be a kids book. Mm-hmm. Um, so for things that I dislike, there's there's really, I said that there's nothing. I do want to know more about Katie Eltwing. Eltwing, how I, I keep forgetting how you say their last Eltwing, name. Eltwing, I think. That girl, Katie. Um, I'd like to know more about what happens to her, but also I think, I think it makes sense that we don't know because we are reading this from Julie's perspective and a child wouldn't know what was going on. You know, an adult's not going to sit down and explain that to her, um, at the age she was when that was happening. So I think it makes sense that there's that era of mystery. Um, I also, I agree with you about Julie and Danny and I was going to say something about that, but I was like, I can't, I want them to be together. So I don't really have a reason to complain about it, but I do I do agree. His character and Chris's character, neither of them are ever flushed out. I'm sorry, who's Chris? Her brother that's with her at the beginning, but then her dad finds out he's worried about Uncle Haskell's influence over him, so he sends him to boarding school. Oh, you're right, and then we never hear from him again. He comes back every once in a while, but okay. it's just to hang out with her and Danny. You're right, he barely plays a role. Yeah, and so those are the only characters that I think she doesn't deal a lot with. And I don't really care about Chris. I think that we don't need more about him. Um, But, yeah, I think it's another... Like most of these books, it's convenient for them to end up together, so they do, you know. Yeah. That's really... I will also say, I was noticing as you were talking, I compared this to Anna Green Gables earlier, and I just all of a sudden remembered that Marilla has a long-lost lover that she has to reconnect with. But it's not in the Mm -hmm. same way, because he's already married and whatever. It's Gilbert's dad. Yeah. um, But uh, it's just like a thing. Like, I don't know, it's very tropey. I mean, like, I think part of it is probably like, well, we have to make sure these women who stay single for so long, we have to have a reason that they stayed single and not that they wanted to be independent or be single well, or I think that, it's not also, that they were lesbians. Well, that's, well, okay. Well, that's one theory. Then you got to prove that Marilla's I, not a lesbian. I think also it's, they don't, in a time where it was more of a tragedy for a woman to be single and to be, 
you know, like burdened with all this responsibility. Also, Marilla's living with her brother. <laughs> right, yeah, the same deal. <laughs> Didn't think about it. Her single things. brother. But I, so you don't want their whole life to be portrayed as this like tragic, you know, oh, nobody wanted them. So you have yeah. to give them somebody that wanted them and some reason they couldn't be together. And I think Cordelia and Jonathan, they're going to be together. I don't think it doesn't. I, I think it's fine in this book. Like it's, it's not a bad, like, wrinkle to this book but it is curious that like it happens in both books um yeah although i will say like someone like cordelia seems so self-assured that it would make complete sense to me that she never wanted to like you know uh settle down with somebody Mm -hmm. like in my head it would be like no one could ever meet her standards like that would be like the rationale and if that was all that the book told us that would make sense to me but mrs peters does explain do you remember? I, I do. And yeah. it wor- like I said, it works within the context of the book. It's just like a funny thing that comes up in books like this. So what happens, for those that haven't read it, is that um, Jonathan moves off to either teach or go to school, and um, Cordelia's mom makes her stay and take care of the farm. So she keeps saying she's going to come see him, but never really has you know, the, the opportunity, and then he moves on and gets with somebody Right, else. and it's kind of connected with Haskell, right? Because, yes. like, as the son, he would, like, be presumed to take care of the farm, but because he's been basically made incompetent by his parents, either neglect or overdoting, depending on which parent we're talking about, yeah. he was not able to yeah. make the farm. I just love this book. It's hard for me to... I don't know. I think... And the the, the more times I read it, the more layers that I think and I think I read it I obviously I read it more closely this time than I would have any of those other times for the podcast but I'm really glad that I did um and I just I wish more people were talking about this book so you're giving it a thumbs up I'm two, hearing two, two thumbs very... up I also am giving this a thumbs up I really like this book the negative things I had to say earlier did not sway my affection for it I will also say because I know that of the very few listeners that we have on this podcast my parents are among them uh, this is directly for my mom. I think my mom, if she has not already read this she book, did. would really like I recommended like this. it to her. She's written oh, my name did. in the front because she borrowed it. Oh, okay. She loved it. Good. Well, so. I knew that she would love it. Mm-hmm. So, Mom, I'm glad that I knew your <laughs> taste so well that I could predict it after the fact. And so did your daughter-in-law. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyway, I, like I said, I also give it a thumbs up. Um, that brings us to a close for Upper Road Slowly. Uh, any last words on this before we move on? No. Okay, well... It's a great book. Sorry yeah. for my coughing. It's from um, pure excitement over this book. That and... And uh, coronavirus. And COVID-19. <laughs> uh, although, is it still COVID-19 at this point? Like. Yeah, because that's when the virus originated. Even though all the mutations, it doesn't get a new number? I don't know. I have no idea. Well... Anyway... I'm sorry that this podcast is hosted by two people who study our, humanities instead of the sciences. Uh... Anyway, uh, next time on the Newberry Chronicles, we're going to be reading um, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred Taylor, which is the 1977 Newberry Award winner. Um, we're moving forward decade by decade, and so now we're into the 70s now, uh, since Approach Slowly was in the 60s. So we will talk about that next time, I suppose. Um, I've not read it before, have you? Nope. Nope. Yeah, so it'll be a new experience for us both. Um, yeah, so looking forward to that. Thanks for listening. Bye.